about the Lord Jesus in the coming weeks in the lead up to Christmas. And for that reason, this is a different message today. It's a long passage we're going to be looking at on the condemnation of Jesus. And really what we're going to do is we're going to follow the story. But before we do anything, uh, you are as much aware as I am that I need the Lord's attention and help uh, in order to faithfully preach this passage this morning. As Dave said, we landed at 7.30 a.m. Praise the Lord in time to get here. We weren't sure there were tornadoes in Dallas and flights delayed, but we're here. And uh, so let's ask and invite the Holy Spirit to come and minister to us this morning as we read from God's Word. Would you join with me in praying? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your presence and power at work in this community. We thank you for the way in which you're answering prayers. Even this morning, Christina sharing with me the answered prayer of a new job closer to home. What a beautiful evidence of your work in our midst. And so as we open your scripture this morning, we invite you, come into our midst. Open our eyes, open our hearts, stir us with fresh affection, with fresh commitment, with fresh faith in our risen King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I begin by reading an article I stumbled across uh, this past week from the New York Times, uh, written by Troy Clausen, entitled, They Spent... 24 years behind bars, then the case fell apart. Uh, Troy Clausen writes the following. He says, On the weekend before Christmas in 1996, a shop owner was opening his check-cashing store in East Elmhurst, Queens, alongside an off-duty police officer who was working security. When the two were ambushed by a group of men, shot and killed. The case touched off a ferocious manhunt, and within days, three men were arrested. They were convicted in separate trials and sentenced to between 50 years and life in prison for murder. But more than two decades later, the case has collapsed. On Friday, a state judge in Queens threw out the convictions of all three men and admonished prosecutors for withholding evidence that would have cast serious doubt on their guilt. Prosecutors never turned over police reports showing that investigators had linked the killings to other men, the members of a local robbery ring, and five witness accounts never seen by defense lawyers that contradicted the men's confessions, which were wrong on key details of the crime and which lawyers say were coerced. The three men, Gary Johnson, 46, George Bell, 44, and Rowan Bolt, 59, stepped outside the walls of Greenhaven Correctional Facility about 70 miles north of New York City on Friday afternoon, each with tears streaming down their faces as they embraced their families. We finally made it, Mr. Bolt shouted, as he clutched two of his young grandchildren's hands for the very first time. When this unfortunate journey began, I was only 19 years old. I was just a kid with no clear understanding of the law or even my own rights, Mr. Bell said at the hearing on Friday. 
thank you for giving me a second chance at life. It's an incredible story of injustice. A miscarriage of justice. You see, it doesn't take much looking around our world to see that our world is filled with injustice. The Ukraine war started on February the 24th of this year with an invasion of a peaceful country. Tens of thousands killed, including women and children. Tens of thousands killed on both sides. Many people from rural backwaters in Russia being deployed simply as cannon fodder. Myanmar, a civil war rages on after a military coup where the bombing and torture of thousands of people occurs every day and largely fails to make the headlines. Or even closer to home, the treatment of indigenous people in this country who for hundreds of years were abused and mistreated and not even included as people to be counted in our nation until 1967. But injustice can touch even closer to home, can't it? Maybe you've found yourself in an abusive relationship. Maybe you've been deserted or assaulted or betrayed or financially exploited. Maybe you've experienced injustice in the workplace, overlooked for a promotion. Maybe a false accusation has been made against you. It could be economic injustice a lack of access to appropriate support or even housing affordability. Or it could be injustice you've experienced at school. Maybe you've been bullied or picked on for your looks or beliefs or desires. It could be injustice in access to healthcare, maybe from an accident or disability or finding that somehow due to events outside of your control that you have lost your health. You know, even recently prior to uh, coming or going to the US, Charlotte, my wife, bumped into a friend from her mother's group at Hornsby, uh, Hornsby Pool. Uh, she was there for swimming lessons and bumped into this woman who explained to her that the very previous evening, her husband, who was at a cafe with their two boys, aged three years of age and six months, had a heart attack at the cafe and died before their eyes. And it all seems so unfair, doesn't it? There are many great injustices in our world. Horrible tragedies that people face each and every day. Well, I'm out to convince you, friends, this morning that there are many injustices in our world. But there is one injustice that is completely unparalleled. I'm out to convince you this morning that the injustice Jesus suffers in our passage is unparalleled in the history of the world, past, present, or future. Now, you might be sitting there and thinking, how on earth is that possible? You see, the truth is, injustice is about treating people as less than they deserve. If you treat someone better than they deserve, we call that grace. 
But injustice, by definition, is not treating someone as they deserve, but treating someone worse than they deserve. But here's the problem. No one is more deserving of honor and praise than the triune God and his son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the king. He is the Christ. He is blameless. He is the divine son. He is all-powerful and all-praiseworthy. Well, why is this significant? It means that as we look at our passage and see the vile way in which our Savior was treated, we are not simply looking at another example of injustice. We are looking at the greatest gap that has ever existed between what someone deserves and how they were treated. No one has deserved more. No one has been treated worse than our Lord Jesus. That means that our passage displays the greatest injustice that has ever been and will ever be seen. You know, if you're writing notes this morning, I've entitled this message, In Our Place, Condemned He Stood. And I've got two simple points. Uh, We're going to just really unpack the passage in point number one, the innocent one condemned. We're going to explain and explore our passage this morning. We're going to dive into the story together and see how it unfolds. And then really a second point, the guilty set free, where we'll be drawing out some of the implications of the narrative that we look at this morning. And here's what I want us to see this morning as we do that. That he embraced this injustice for us and that we give thanks. I think that's the appropriate response to seeing what he's done for us. So let's dive right in this morning to point number one, the innocent one condemned. Well, just by way of bringing us to the place we're up to in our story, we saw a couple of weeks ago Jesus in Gethsemane. Gethsemane was his favorite spot on the Mount of Olives, and he was there with his disciples praying in agony. When Judas, one of the twelve disciples, came and betrayed the Lord Jesus with a kiss that marked him out in the middle of the night, Uh, Jesus, with a crowd to arrest him, despite the soldiers repeatedly being awestruck and falling to the ground, despite the amazing healing of Malchus, the servant of the high priest's ear that was chopped by Simon, is arrested and taken into custody. Last week, Jack preached on the denial of Peter, how before the high priest's house, Three times Peter caves the pressure and denies the Lord Jesus. And so we come to our passage for this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 22. Uh, We're going to read from verse 63. If you don't have your Bible, don't worry, it'll be displayed on the screen. Luke chapter 22, verse 63 says the following. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. 
And Jesus in this passage is at Annas' house. He's the unofficial high priest. Uh, Annas was hugely influential. He had five priests who were all at some point the high priest, including his son-in-law Caiaphas, who would in turn, and at this time was, serving as the current high priest. Despite having many other high priests, Annas was the one pulling the strings. He was the one truly calling the shots. And note the repeated words in our passage. Mocking. Beating. Shaming. Blaspheming. That word means to slander, to revile, to speak disrespectfully. Luke is hinting on at what is actually taking place because Jesus is the divine son of God. In Matthew's account, it says they spat upon him repeatedly. Think on what that means. To spit on someone is to say, I count you as being worth the refuse that comes from my body. I count you as being worth dirt. This is the perfect man. This is the God man. This is the divine son of God. Think on the love and grace he had shown to others in his life. How he had compassion on the sick and he healed them. How he welcomed those excluded and cast out. You know, blasphemy usually refers to words used against God. But here in our passage, they beat him with their fists. John says they then sent him to Caiaphas' house. That's Annas' son-in-law the current high priest, where they form a ruling council. And so Jesus appears before the Sanhedrin. Let's read on from verse 66. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to the council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. The Sanhedrin that was gathered together was in fact the governing body for religious affairs in Jerusalem. They would decide on matters of the law and matters of governance of the Jewish people. They had representatives from every realm of Jewish life. John describes that this gathering occurred very early in the morning. Now, just like courts in our days, the court does not gather very 
early in the morning. The court does not gather secretly in somebody's house. This is, in fact, an unjust trial. This is a kangaroo court. Mark tells us they tried to collect many false witnesses, but the testimonies of the witnesses clash. They don't agree. And so they asked Jesus directly, tell us if you are the Christ. And Jesus, in effect, says, there's no point in conversing with you. You've already made your minds up. And then he quotes from this famous passage in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And this passage reads as follows. It says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel writes of his vision, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel's vision is a vision of one like a son of man, that means one like a human, who is taken up on the clouds to the throne of God and becomes God himself's right-hand man. And he's given authority of the entire earth for all eternity. And Mark says that Caiaphas, on hearing this, tears his robes, a sign of mourning or of outrage, And they accuse him of slandering God, blaspheming against his name. It's incredibly ironic. In Matthew, he writes that they condemn him to death. And they spit upon him. And they beat him. And they send him to Pilate. And so we pick up our story again in chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forgiving, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is a Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up all the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. Pilate was the governor of Judea at this time, and a man with a brutal reputation. In Luke chapter 13, Uh, we read that he had in fact slaughtered many Galileans from Jesus' own hometown and mingled their blood with their sacrifices. In another uh, account of Josephus, we learn that Pilate had also made some pretty significant mistakes during his reign, even taking uh, Roman pagan symbols and placing them inside the holy temple itself, causing riots and outrage. 
Now, Pilate was normally based in Caesarea, but was here in Jerusalem likely to keep watch over the Passover celebrations to make sure nothing untoward happened. And they bring false charges. Firstly, they charge Jesus with being an insurrectionist, with forbidding taxes to Caesar. Now, in Luke 20, Jesus had already addressed this topic with a trap that was laid for him, saying that no one must give taxes to both Caesar and to God. So this was patently untrue. And secondly, they say that Jesus is claiming to be a rival king to Caesar, that he is trying to somehow threaten Caesar's rule in Jerusalem and Judea. John says that Pilate questions him privately, where Jesus answers him saying, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate finds him not guilty, but the chief priests and the scribes and the crowds are insistent. And when he finds out that he is from the northern district, the northern region of Galilee, he sees an opportunity to avoid the whole issue completely. And so he sends him to King Herod. And our story continues in verse 6 of chapter 23. It says the following. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some signs done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently, accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. And this is Herod Antipas who's the ruler of the northern area of Galilee. Uh, Herod the Great, who was Herod Antipas's dad, had such little confidence in his ability to rule that he had actually split up his kingdom into four parts, one part being held by Herod Antipas in the north and one part being ruled by Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. And Herod, who was ruler of the north, was likely here also for Passover festival. And he'd already heard about Jesus and was intrigued and excited to see a miracle. And so he questions him extensively, but Jesus remains silent. Luke in this gospel emphasizes that the leaders stand at the forefront, forcefully, passionately accusing Jesus. And Jesus is silent throughout the whole ordeal. And in response, they mock him and they dress him up and they send him back to Pilate. And we continue the story in verse 13. We read the following. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, 
I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. Pilate, we learn behind the scenes, is becoming increasingly troubled and afraid of Jesus. Matthew writes that Pilate's wife had had a dream about Jesus that had deeply troubled her. Matthew writes that Pilate's wife had a dream that informed her that Jesus was a righteous man and that he should be released, that Pilate should have nothing to do with him. John then describes that the Pharisees accused Jesus of claiming to be the Son of God. And this deeply troubles Pilate even further. And he begins to question Jesus again. In John's Gospel, he writes that on questioning by Pilate, Jesus remains silent. Until Pilate appeals to him, saying, Don't you understand I have authority to kill you? And Jesus says to him, You would have no power unless it was given you from above. At which Pilate frantically seeks to release Jesus. In our passage, twice Pilate explains that Jesus is innocent. He says, I've examined him. Herod has also examined him. We have found nothing at all. But he comes up with a solution. He says, I will therefore punish him. And release him. That word punish means to discipline someone by whipping or scourging. Scourging being using a cat of nine tails with shards and things designed to rip and tenderize the skin on someone's back. Hoping this will pacify the crowd, he indeed scourges Jesus. But this is a massive injustice. He is torturing a man who he is repeatedly announced to be innocent. And so he sends Jesus away to be scourged, and Jesus returns to him as a battered, bleeding mess. Pilate then comes across another idea about how he can release Jesus. Verse 17, which you'll notice is absent from our passage is a verse found in Matthew and Mark, and it seems that it was placed here as an explanatory note included by a scribe, which quotes from Matthew and Mark describing the custom of releasing a prisoner at Passover. He knows that they have brought Jesus out of envy because of his popularity, and so he believes that Jesus will be released by the crowds when given the opportunity. And so he presents Jesus to the crowd and in John's gospel famously announces, behold the man, meaning look at this guy. He is no threat to you. He offers to release either Barabbas or Jesus, expecting that Jesus will be the choice. 
until we read the following in verse 18 of our passage. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Barabbas was a zealot. He was passionate for the restoration of Israel by force. He had started a riot in the city and he had committed murder and he deserved to be in prison. He was a kind of alternate Messiah. Barabbas, the name means son of the father. He was the leader of a rebellion and some people would likely have sympathized with his actions. Matthew describes him as being notorious. But it backfires and they shout, give us Barabbas and crucify this man. In John's gospel, it's described that they have in fact laid for Pilate a trap. A political trap. If you support this man, you cannot support Caesar. This man is a rival king. And so we read the following in verse 22. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. The religious leaders have whipped the crowd into such a frenzy that Pilate is trapped. Remember that Pilate is here in Jerusalem for the purpose of keeping the peace during Passover. And so John writes that Pilate took Jesus to his judgment seat, known amongst the people as Gabbatha, a raised pavement area. In Matthew, it describes that he took a basin of water and washed his hands, symbolic of his refusal to accept responsibility for Jesus' death, perhaps to appease his own conscience. And Matthew reports that the crowd calls out, we will be responsible for this man's death, us and our children. And so Barabbas, the murderer, the convicted felon, is released. And Jesus, the innocent one, the only perfect man, is handed over for crucifixion. Friends, this isn't 
just another example of injustice. This is the greatest of all injustices. He is the eternal son. From eternity, Jesus had been God the son. He made the men that now humiliate him. Despite the injustice, his gaze is fixed. He's often silent. He does not resist. He reveals just enough to provoke their anger even further. For he's determined to embrace the cost of the cross. Friends, what a privilege it has been to look upon what he embraced for us. And so that is point number one. The innocent one condemned. But not just that, point number one, the innocent one condemned. We want to pause now to look at the implications of this for us. In point number two, the guilty set free. See, as I mentioned at the start of this message, we want to conclude by pausing to look at how our passage speaks to us. This passage is not primarily about us. It is about Jesus and all he did for us and the injustice he faced. But all scripture is breathed out for us and for our good and and has serious implications for how we ought rightly respond to the things we read. And the first and obvious way in which we respond is through great thanksgiving to God. You know, as we have read through this passage, one question that I find myself asking is, where should we look to find ourselves in this story? Should we find ourselves as the hiding disciples? Should we find ourselves as the jeering crowd? Should we find ourselves as the indifferent soldiers or perhaps as the fearful pilot? Well, I say all of these can be true in a way, but I believe there is a primary figure in which we are meant to see ourselves. And that figure, that person is Barabbas. You know, recently the papers here in Sydney have been filled with the story of the trial and conviction of Chris Dawson. Chris Dawson was convicted of murdering his wife, uh, Lynette Dawson, made popular by the popular podcast, The Teacher's Pet. But imagine with me the scene as the judge hands down his conviction of Mr. Dawson. Having described the events, having given his verdict of guilty as charged, the judge steps down from his desk to say, let me take the punishment instead. That would be an incredible injustice. And yet that is just a glimpse at what Christ has done for us. See, our passage is a reminder of the great exchange that has taken place for us. 
We rightly should drink of his cup. We rightly should face the wrath of God for our sins. And yet on the cross, he embraced injustice. The justice that rightly belongs to us for our sake to enable our forgiveness. As he hung on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for all of our failings, he enabled God to say over us that you are forgiven and at the same time to be fair in doing so. See, we have caused great injustice in the world. We are guilty of huge injustice, each and every one of us in the way we have treated God. John Piper says the following of this topic. He says, The more a person deserves, and the less we render what they deserve, the greater the injustice. God alone deserves the highest honor and the highest praise, the highest love, the highest fear, the highest devotion, the highest allegiance, the highest admiration, and the highest obedience. God alone deserves the absolute maximum of all of these things. Every single human being has fallen short of that. All of us have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of human beings, and thus insulted Him as high as possible. There is great injustice against God being done all day, all over the world, until Jesus breaks in. Listen to this. Every human is guilty of an injustice that is infinitely worse than all the injustices against men put together. If that sentence sounds like an overstatement to you, my suggestion is that your God is too small. Every human is guilty of an injustice, namely against God, that is infinitely worse than all the injustices against man put together. Friends, as Jesus hung on the cross, bleeding, suffering, under the wrath of God, For humanity's sin, he embraced the greatest of all injustices. And he reminds us each and every day of God's kindness. We deserve the undiluted wrath of God for our sins. We put the matchless Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, on that cross. And we receive grace and mercy each and every day because Jesus took our place. Isn't that so good? Doesn't that just make you want to give thanks to God? Now, C.J. Mahaney, the, the founder of Sovereign Grace Churches, is famous for saying, every day, even on our worst days, we receive far better than we deserve. 
Now, that's not to diminish that people in this life face genuine, awful injustice. I don't want to diminish in any way the injustices that any of us have faced. But we put the matchless Savior of the world on the cross. And yet we receive grace and mercy each and every day because Jesus took our place. He is so good. And so relative to Christ, all of our injustices become small, even the worst of them. And so we can give thanks in each and every season. And that's really the first implication I want us to see this morning, that we can give thanks because of what Jesus embraced. Not just that, there's a second implication I want us to see this morning And that is that this is a wonderful motivation for sharing the gospel. You know, in our neighborhood, there's a lot of passion amongst people about dealing with injustice in the world. There's loads of passion for it. About dealing with injustice in the workplace. Pay gaps and gender discrimination. Discrimination against ethnicity or preference or crime. Uh, There's passion about injustices in society. A passion for indigenous reconciliation, a passion for injustices in healthcare, a passion about inclusion of the disability, of those with disability. There's passion for environmental injustices, how businesses exploit the lands of other people, how governments destroy the natural environment or the environments of those that are poor. There's passion for global injustice, conflicts and human rights abuses and slavery. Now, All of these things are tragic, and all of these things are worthy causes. But we must remember that there is one type of injustice far greater in magnitude than all of these. One so much greater, it cannot be compared in its scale. And that is injustice towards God. See, Jesus' embrace of injustice for us is so beautiful. It should motivate us to share the wonderful news of his love with everyone. We must care as Christians about all forms of injustice in the world. But we must care most about the greatest Forms of injustice, which is the way in which the Lord Jesus is treated by those around us. A question perhaps to think on on this topic is this. Who is God putting on your heart right now to share the wonderful news of Jesus with? In the lead up to Christmas. To care about injustice is to care about others. Especially where they are committing the greatest of injustices towards God. You could invite that friend, that person to one of our connection events. So they might experience something more of the love of Christ in the love of this community. You know, something I've been thinking about this week is what if we 
prayed more frequently, Colossians 4, 3, where Paul prays for an open door to declare the gospel and that he might declare it as he ought. What if we pray that as we stepped into the office at work? Just for a few seconds, pray, Lord, open a door that I might declare the gospel. What if we prayed that as we went to family dinners and gatherings? What if we prayed that more often as we stepped into the train, that God would open up a door for the gospel, that we might share it and love people as we ought? Imagine what God might do in our community as we step down in faith more frequently to do that. Well, friends, as we come to the conclusion of our time together, I wanted to end with a story of something that is happening in our family of churches on the other side of the world, a story that really summarizes how, in the midst of our various injustices, we can embrace them with joy, knowing what Christ has done for us. And this comes uh, as a story from one of our sister churches in Belarus where the wife of a pastor was arrested for holding a Bible verse in a crowd of protesters seeking to minister to those protesters. She was uh, sentenced to two years in prison of hard labor. And this is a diary entry that we were sent uh, from her prison cell after appearing in court. Listen to this. She writes, In the early hours of the morning, I was reading a passage from the book of Hebrews that tells us to run to the throne of mercy and grace to find help at the right time. What a pity I can't have a Bible here. But many passages of Scripture throbbed in my memory, giving me a hope at every turn of my journey here How good that this passage from Hebrews was brought to my mind today. Did I hope in God during all this time in prison? Oh, yes. When the trial was over, I returned to the cell and collapsed exhausted on an iron bed without a mattress. Weakness flowed through my body. But at the same time, satisfaction. Everything is behind. Finally, I appeared before our fair court. Finally, I was able to say what I really think about all this. I did not betray myself in my conscience. I only trust in God. Whatever the verdict, I entrust my fate to him and him alone. He knows what is best and right for me, and I will take it gradually. How fast? That depends on experience, but I know that I will accept no matter what happens. God is faithful. Now everything depends on him. God is good. I ask God for mercy. I know my husband is waiting for me. I know that thousands of Christians are praying for me. I trust God. I trust my husband and boldly and fearlessly approach the throne of God's mercy in order to receive it in full. Let this sentence not be a barrier to me to worship him and keep my conscience clean before his face. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a picture of how Jesus' embrace of injustice for us can lead us to give thanks, even in injustices we might face. Would you pray with me as we close? Lord Jesus, we want to thank you so much this morning for the privilege of hearing from you. We want to thank you so much for the way in which you embraced the greatest of all injustices upon the cross for our sake. Lord Jesus, would we be a people who daily 
declare that we receive from your hand better than we deserve because of Jesus. Would we be a people of great thanksgiving and praise to you, no matter what this life brings? Would we be a people that always can see that you are for us and you are good because you were willing to embrace such injustice for us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we continue to give thanks to the Lord.